Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We'll begin the second part of our program now, or I guess it's the third, if you consider your lunch. Um, next week, we do have um, a program again. It's the use of force by law enforcement, how much is appropriate, and our speaker is Vaughn Hembrock. So next week, same time, same place, come and learn about the law. Okay, so I'm going to invite Amy Vaughn, and I did say her name incorrectly the first time, I tried so hard. Her name is Amy Vaughn, I think, and I'm told the Vaughn has something to do with royalty. So please invite her highness back to speak, to speak on um, religion in our public school system. I was not allowed to go to because I didn't know the Lord's Prayer by heart. I tried to explain to the teachers I do know it by heart, but in German. <laughs> okay, that didn't fly. <laughs> okay, my, my uh, a question here relates to the information on religion through the public system vis-a-vis -vis in the separate schools, the Catholic school, it's not just information, it's religious education. It's religious teaching. How is that fit under the Human Rights Act or Human uh, Rights and Freedom? And how does that fit in our current system? Uh, again, it goes back to Section 93 of the British North America Act. Um, so the Constitution says that provinces have the right and responsibility to legislate with regard to education. So it is part of the reason um, when you're asked what Canadian schools do, the answer is very complicated because it varies according to every jurisdiction across the country virtually. Um, but part of that section 93 does guarantee that denominational schools that were in existence at the time of confederation uh, have a constitutional right to continue to exist uh, with the funding that was in place. So in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, there, were, there were fully publicly funded Roman Catholic schools, and it gets even more complicated when we start to call them public or separate schools, uh, because going back to 1905, there were actually public school districts that were Roman Catholic, and the separate system was Protestant. Uh, and as 
school districts have amalgamated that has changed so that there in Alberta there remains only one Roman Catholic public district and that's in St. Albert so it's the separate system is actually called Protestant um, but in any case I mean it, the BNA Act that is the constitution of this country and it says in the charter that nothing there abrogates or derogates the rights of the denominational minority with regard to uh, religious schools so uh, that is why there are fully publicly funded Roman Catholic schools in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Ontario. Uh, but in British Columbia, these are operated as private schools, typically with about 50% of uh, public funding. So it varies ac across. And I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I, my own view is that on balance, I think Albertans are served well by a diverse public school system, and I mean public in the broadest sense. Uh, parents have a range of options. I think that um, we have a long history in this province of schools contributing to the common good and, and doing that work well. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, thank you very much for evening. My question is, uh, is there any that you know of uh, publicly funded schools in Alberta that teaches uh, other religions? So um, the only other schools under Section 21 of the School Act, alternative programs can be based on religion. Uh, so as I mentioned, most are non-denominational Christian programs, uh, but there, um, there's a Jewish school in Edmonton, Talmud Torah, that operates as part of Edmonton Public Schools. Edmonton is also uh, home to the Sakhanov Circle program, which is uh, an Islamic program. There is an Islamic public school in Fort McMurray. And there are a number of schools grounded in Aboriginal spirituality, so that's also acknowledged uh, under Section 21. So yes, there are others. My name is Mary Tillington. Thank you very much for our down-packed information yeah. session. Yeah, you really proved it and, and did well. Uh, I'm concerned about the Section 11.1, which is that mm -hmm. you have to notify parents mm -hmm. if you're going to do religion or human sexuality or sexual orientation. Can you give a history of that, how it came about and when it happened, and what the impacts are? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I can recall exactly all of the, the sort of current issue that triggered that, um, but it was, I mean, it comes out of an issue, I think, going back to 2009. It came into effect in 2010. Um, my understanding is that it came to the attention or was brought to public attention um, by a group of concerned parents um, that were concerned about uh, teaching with regard to human sexuality in schools and their objections were, made, were largely religiously grounded. And so the decision was taken to insert this particular clause into the Human Rights Act. I mean, on one level, I think there was sort of um, the message given to, to, to the profession that this didn't, shouldn't change practice, that in fact it has been the practice of schools to, um, in, to inform parents, for example, when they deal with issues of human sexuality in schools and, that, and parents have every right to exempt their children from that. Um, I'll be blunt that I think this is a, a, a pretty ham-fisted approach to dealing with an issue that you know, may in fact be controversial, but therefore has the potential to be, I think, very important for teachers to deal with in a professional way. Um, so I do think it has had a chilling effect on teachers who might otherwise have been more likely um, to do some explicit teaching. They might be less likely to do that just out of concern. 
as far as I know, there haven't been any particular, there haven't been challenges or cases associated with that, but I, others may know better than I. Yeah, Myrtle Atherstone. Thank you very much, Amy. That was wonderful. <clears throat> very informative. Um, I'm very interested, as also a past professor in, um, in the Faculty of Ed, having taught student teachers, uh, in the aspects that you described, respect, empathy, and compassion, which we taught by teachers, and then the four principles, teaching a whole child, and so on. And I want to ask you, where in the Faculty of Ed teacher training program are these respect, empathy, and compassion taught, and the four principles? I, I hope that they're integrated throughout. <laughs> um, now, I, what I can say, I mean, specifically with regard to sort of the, the identities of students, I mean, an, an acknowledgement and, and a help in preparing student teachers to deal with the diversity of today's classrooms. I mean, the reality is they're dealing with a whole range of diversities. They might be linguistic, lots of um, English as a second language learners. Uh, they'd be dealing with ethnic diversity, with learning styles and, and diverse programming of all kinds. So. Uh, in, in the case of our program, certainly religious diversity is attended to within that context. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Lance Grigg, and I have both teach a course specifically in the social context of schooling, which is intended to uh, at least increase awareness uh, amongst our student teachers of that diversity. But you know, it all, in, in reality, it all works together. I mean, these are things that often come up within the context of the curriculum courses that we, we teach. It certainly comes up within the context of their field placements, and then those are things that we deal with and talk about uh, in our courses as well. So again, I mean, these are four principles that are my own, actually. Uh, I made them up. Um, but I, you know, I do think that these are um, important principles, and they would certainly reflect the teaching that I do with my student teachers. Thank you so much. Hi, Amy. My name is Bridget Pasteur. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but I am an MLA, so we're all okay. <laughs> all right, so let's get that out of the way. Um, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent, but um, which I've been noted for. But anyway, um, Section 11 also was very influenced by homeschoolers. Right. Yeah. Um, but one thing caught my eye, and um, religion and patriotism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Patriotism? Why we put those together? I mean, I, I go to schools um, on November the 11th and, and that sort of thing, and I'm actually, frankly, appalled. Very few can sing O Canada. God forbid they even know what God Say the Queen was. Yeah, I think that's, that's and well their body language has absolutely <laughs> no respect whatsoever in any way, shape, or form for our, our national anthem. So, maybe just a slight comment on the patriotic side of what we yeah. are or are not doing in our schools. Yeah, and it's interesting that in the school acts, historically, these have always been paired, and religious exercises and patriotic instruction, and largely because objections to, to involvement in patriotic uh, exercises was done out of religious conviction. So this is why the two um, have typically been paired, though it's interesting that most school boards deal with the two in different policies. They don't put them together in the same policy. Um, I mean, certainly your observation, I, I spend a lot of time in schools supervising student teachers, working with teachers, I, I would agree. I mean, I think the practice in many schools is simply to play the national anthem over the intercom rather than, uh, you know, in elementary school they might sing it and then it sort of drifts away. Um, and at some, you know, I even 
they might sing it once a week and otherwise, but I mean, you're right, it has, it's not just the practice, it's the nature of that practice. I mean, that's actually why a lot of schools have, even if they were allowed uh, to continue religious exercises, don't continue with the practice just because they feel, you know, if, if it's a devotional purpose, it certainly doesn't play out like that in context. Um, you know, if any of you, and I'm sure many of you have tried to get a class started at the mm -hmm. beginning of the day, it's typically not a terribly worshipful um, environment, um, and not a great, you know, context in which to uh, to conduct a religious exercise. So, you know, it's, it's, that's an interesting observation, certainly consistent with what I've seen. Douglas Mitchell, thank you for a very lucid presentation. I think we have to look much more uh, fundamentals of what we're talking about here, religion, faith, mm -hmm. and history. History, and I, like uh, Henning, uh, remember mm -hmm. my youth in Scotland, we used to have the best education in the world a century ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had one hour of religious instruction, RI, mm -hmm. every week, and of course the usual assembly, which the uh, the non-Protestants <laughs> were exempted if they wished to be. But I, I do think that, um, uh, and I would like to get your thoughts on this, that, that here religion is an understanding the social context of that and realizing the parental responsibility in terms of, of uh, influencing, and this is one of the problems we have uh, certainly, I think in all priests today, is that we all have our built-in biases. Mm -hmm. We have the truth, you've heard that, some of you, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> there is no truth for a small group. So it's how do we in the schools address this question of introducing children to the whole question of religion and faith? Well, I think this is my reason for just pointing out that there is no education about religion that's actually required in our schools. Unlike the UK, where they do have religious education as part of in NASA's meaning education about religion, uh, as part of a curriculum, that, that doesn't happen in Alberta, uh, at least not until students have the opportunity at high school um, to choose those options, and they're certainly not widely available in public schools. So um, you're right, I mean, there's a situation in which many students are simply ignorant about religion. Um, you know, there's all of our school, all of our classrooms would be quite diverse in the kind of religious commitment or non-religious commitment of their schools. And I, I do think that's one of the reasons for that there is a strength in local school districts being able to make decisions that are appropriate for their context. And even school boards will um, encourage differing practices depending on the community in which those schools are based. So in the end, I mean, no, a compromise often means that no one is happy. Um, but I think if we're clear that students are bringing their religious identity into classrooms, that we have an obligation to ensure that they are capable of critical thinking and engaging with people who differ in their opinions about the most fundamental questions about life, about what it means to be a human being, about their relationship with the transcendent, then we're going to be making sure that they understand what quality under the law really means in terms of belief and religious practice, and that they will be able to work constructively with people who believe things that are quite different from their own beliefs. 
But I just, I mean, going back, I, I, I absolutely agree that it's, you know, it's interesting that it has not been the practice in Alberta to teach about religion. Terry Schilling, thank you for your presentation. It's very content-rich. I guess I would clarify I don't have to address you as your highness. No. <laughs> Good. I have a kind of long rambling question, but in the end, I'd like you to say more about Alberta being well served by this system. You see, I understand that historically, this act was a way for Catholics and Protestants to do education in this province without tearing each other apart and so on. And I understand the value of some charter schools, but I believe now we're watching the proliferation of a number of schools which really are wholly huddles in which the science program may be taught differently than in the public school system with quite different nuances, and in which children are protected from other children who watch television, for example. Uh, and so the school becomes a holy huddle that I question how richly it prepares uh, for adult life in, in our province. And I watch, in contrast, the way Mormons do education, in which uh, I'm not aware of Mormon uh, private schools. They, they seem to operate in the public system, and the strength of their congregational life uh, reinforces their particular views, which I, I don't especially share, but I respect their views, and, and they come out of the public system quite able to deal with a, um, uh, a diverse culture. So in 2013-14 in now, I'm, I wonder, is it really true that we're well served by what's happening uh, uh, around us? I mean, those are excellent questions, and I guess the, the, my point would be that those are questions that need to be answered with information and research, and I think we often make assumptions um, that educating children in a particular faith context, by definition, means isolating them. Uh, we actually, I mean, there's, there's no evidence that that happens. Um, I mean, I can speak to two studies that I have been involved with. One is a large-scale quantitative survey of 2,000 graduates of a whole range of schools. That's what they call it, not the statistically valid or representative sample uh, of graduates from across Canada, half from fully funded public or state schools, the others uh, from Roman Catholic separate schools, from independent non-religious schools, from independent religious schools, and then homeschoolers and so on. Uh, this is a study that you can find on the CARDUS website, C-A-R-D-U-S dot C-A. Uh, they are a think tank that sponsored uh, a study both of American independent schools as well as Canadian schools. And the interesting finding out of that study, and it's, they, it was 24 to 39-year-olds who were uh, surveyed about their levels of uh, religious engagement, civic engagement, and their academic achievement. What was interesting out of that study is that the most civically engaged population were the graduates of independent schools, both non-religious and religious. Uh, they were, in fact, the ones that were doing the most volunteer work, that were most politically engaged, that were had much higher levels of charitable donations. Um, so, I mean, that's interesting emerging data that we need, uh, we need to follow up on. But I guess it certainly suggests to me that we have, that there, I mean, it didn't offer any evidence that these are not schools that are contributing to the common good. I've also been involved in a year-long um, qualitative case study of a public alternative Christian school. And the question that we were really asking as we lived in the school, worked in the school, studied their practice, was the nature of the faith integration into their uh, curriculum. And we were particularly interested in citizenship education. Now again, this is a public school that teaches the public school curriculum that is administered and staffed uh, through the board. 
And we didn't find any evidence that, for example, that science curriculum was being delivered in ways that were fundamentally different uh, or that were not meeting the outcomes of the program, which is very specific. Uh, we saw citizenship education that encouraged critical thinking, level, high levels of um, participation and civic engagement that um, certainly taught multiple perspectives. And in fact, I think what was particularly interesting is that the teachers were very attentive to teaching multiple worldviews because they were so aware of their own. Um, I mean, one statement we heard often from this staff that was in, an in it was a, had been an independent school and had come into the public school system, is that coming into the public school system forced them to think very specifically about how that should change their practice and what they should be as a public school uh, as opposed to a private school. Um, now, those are two very different kind of snapshots. It's certainly not suggesting that all schools um, are, can, are conduct themselves in that way, but it certainly suggests to me that we need to think very seriously about the assumptions we make that they're not doing what they should be doing. Let's put it that way. Um, my name is Henry Heinen, and I have four questions observation. You seem to use private and independent schools interchangeably. I, I am. Which I and, and you can comment on that. Okay. Secondly, uh, the MLA talked about homeschooling. I wonder if you could say something about that in terms of the positives and also some of the negatives in terms of what I see and observe. My wife homeschools, especially these kids. And uh, thirdly, could you say something about the funding in terms of schools on the reserves? Federal, provincial, that's, I know it's a tricky issue because what we hear all the time that they're getting less funding than, say, uh, the schools generally speaking in, in the province, say, as public schools on the reserves. And I forgot the fourth, so maybe that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's right. yeah, I'll probably forget the third by the time I forget the first two. So the first, I'll work backwards. Um, I really can't say anything about reserve schools. Um, I'm sorry, not my area of expertise, and I, I, I don't know um, sort of off the top of my head except specifically what the funding formula is, other than it is the responsibility of the federal government. Maybe others have more to offer there. Uh, with regard to homeschooling, that is an option in, in Alberta. I mean, we have a school act that is grounded in, in choice and diversity and equity um, and flexibility. So uh, homeschooling is an option for parents, uh, for families here in Alberta. Those homeschooling parents do need to register with the board. Uh, and their programs have, are therefore overseen uh, on some level. They get some funding uh, to help with the, um, for buying instructional resources and so on. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a, not an area of research at all. Um, but I, I, again, it's certainly reflective of our province's approach to offering parents a, an array of educational options that will work best for them. And then I forgot what your first question was. So there you go. Well, the fourth one is, in terms of independent private schools, there's a credit oh, and right. non-accredited. Maybe you want to comment on that. Sure, sorry. And, and that was my fourth one that just came to me because at my age, you do get senior moments. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> um, exactly. The first question was asking me to, to distinguish between the two. I was using the two interchangeably. but. Um, they're referred to as private schools in the School Act in Alberta. We have unaccredited and accredited private schools. So there are private schools that operate in the province. Uh, the province knows that they exist. They are registered, but they don't receive any public funding. 
uh, those that are accredited go through a process of review. They get 70% of the per pupil grant if they abide by a whole range of accountability measures, including that their students participate in provincial testing, they teach the provincial curriculum, and so on. So uh, they have their accountability pillars, they're called that, that the schools actually need to report on. So that level of accountability needs to be in place for them to receive public funding. My name is Tad Mitsui, and thank you very much for your presentation. My question is, what do you think of what's happening in Quebec? <laughs> uh, I ask you this question because you seem to make religion as an integral part of multicultural society. On the other hand, in Quebec, their concept of multicultural society excludes religion. This is their definition of secular society. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, as you can imagine, no, I, I, I wouldn't support that kind of legislation. I think it's um, unfortunate. I do see religion as an integral part of a multicultural society. I can't imagine how um, they expect students to learn about, learn from each other when there, for example, is no religious expression allowed at all. I mean, sometimes we make assumptions that if we put children of diverse backgrounds, whether that's class or race or religion, in one school, that they will automatically or somehow learn from each other. But they can't do that if they're not allowed to be themselves. And I think that's fundamentally what our public schools need to do. They need to allow children to be themselves. Amy, while we're waiting for the next person to come forward, and I hope we will have a few more questions from the floor, um, you've said a few times about children coming through the door and bringing their faith with them. What about the little people coming through the door that have been given no instruction in faith-based learning? and they don't have a, a religion of, as such. Well, I guess that's my point, that even that is a part of who they are. Um, I mean, they, they, they might be coming from households with a whole range of beliefs. I mean, they don't come in empty. <laughs> and right, so, I mean, whether they're leaving, um, you know, a, an atheism, whether that's what they're bringing into the classroom, or whether they're bringing a particular religious commitment, or whether they're simply bringing um, their curiosity and interest. I mean, all of that is part of what children are bringing into the classroom, and needs and that needs to be accommodated. Um, and again, going back to our fundamental freedom of belief, conscience, religion means that we are also free not to practice religion. Hi, my name is Frances Schultz. One of my concerns is the question of the unaccredited schools how many there are, what numbers of students we're talking about, and do you have information on when they come out of their school system, if they have the skills of critical thinking, of advancing equality, of any of the issues that we want our students to come out of school with? I don't have specific numbers of uh, non-accredited private schools in Alberta. I mean, the reason, and that's, that's what it means to be unaccredited, uh, that they're sort of, you know, they are not subject to the oversight of Alberta education in the sense that they are not subject to uh, the whole range of accountability measures or pillars that public, separate, uh, and accredited private schools would be um, accountable for. 
So uh, they can choose to use whatever program or curriculum that they would like to use. Um, to be, but they also don't walk out with a high school diploma, with an Alberta high school diploma. Uh, now, going back to why these schools exist, that actually goes back to a case in the 1970s um, about a, a, the Holdeman Mennonite School in Three Hills, Alberta, uh, where a group of Holdeman Mennonites set up a school. Um, they ended up uh, taking the parents uh, to court, and uh, one particular parent sort of was the one that they ended up ended up in court. And uh, the judge in that case, the Alberta judge. Guarantee, I mean, said that they have the right to 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 run a school um, because he acknowledged that the public school um, culture was hostile uh, to their particular faith worldview. But giving acknowledging the right of a religious group or any group um, to educate their own children as they see fit doesn't, of course, guarantee public funding for that effort. And so, in this case, um, the school act was amended to simply acknowledge the right or recognize the right of schools to exist. Um, but the choice, I mean, the, the choice was made to do that and, and to allow that as an option. And my, my sense is that there are, there are few in the province. I mean, there, aren't, there certainly aren't very many. Um, but that that is um, a recognized, a, a, a right that the Alberta courts have recognized. Can you repeat this again? My question is kind of related to that. There's some people will argue that private schools should not receive any funding, including some politicians. Yeah. Uh, what is your view? I and mean, do, you, do you think it erodes the public system by, is it a slippery slope, so to speak? Well, I mean, there are a range of ways to approach the question. I mean, financially, I think it's interesting that on some level, funding private schools or Indian private, accredited private schools, up to 70% of the pupil grant actually saves Alberta taxpayers money because all of those parents who are sending their children to private schools pay taxes. Uh, and yet they only get 70% you know, of uh, the, the per pupil grant back in their private schools. So if those private schools were not operating, all of those students would be in the public system and you would now have to accommodate all of those students. Um, and it, it seems to me, I mean, it, often there is a concern about fragmentation, there's a concern of uh, sort of parents fleeing to, uh, to private schools. We have a long history of uh, funding private schools in this province. That hasn't happened. <laughs> uh, it still remains about 2% of the Alberta student population are in religiously grounded in private schools, accredited private schools. Um, so it doesn't seem to me that there's an overwhelming demand or flight from the public system uh, amongst parents who have a particular religious worldview that they would prefer to see their, their children educated within. Um, so I go back to the statement that I, you know, I think we need to recognize the right, uh, freedom of religion, that's a fundamental freedom. I think we need to realize that education is about the whole child. <laughs> and I think it's important that the schools are operating within a framework that makes them accountable for what they're teaching. And so to fund them and to therefore ensure that we have a school act and a school curriculum and teachers who can ensure that they are in fact ready to take their place as citizens of a democracy in which they're going to be dealing with, not just tolerating, but hopefully celebrating um, the diversity of this community, being able to think their way through the challenging problems that can emerge. 
you know, our system has, has actually served students well in doing that. Um, so I, I, I don't see any pressing needs for changes in that in funding. This will be our last question. Go ahead, sir. Well, I, I don't exactly know how to frame the question, but the human rights... Um, your name? I'm sorry, Brooke Cody. The human rights uh, clause, clause 11, was actually in a previous school act okay. that yeah. got defeated in Parliament. Bridget, I believe it wasn't the homeschoolers. I believe it was the Catholic lobby that actually got that clause removed. I mean, on the front, it was the homeschoolers that were on the steps of the legislature, but I believe the government pulled back because of the strong Catholic lobby. Um, can you see in Alberta with one public school education, not a separate and a public school education system? You know, our governments have consistently made it clear that they have no interest in opening that discussion. I mean, it would involve a constitutional amendment. Um, and uh, you know, the message from our series of ministers has been that Albertans are well served by a system that has been diverse, that uh, has recognized the rights of denominational minorities. I don't see Alberta being served well by a homogenous public system. That's just not on. I see, uh, uh, in fact, I see districts getting much more heterogeneous in the kind of programming that they're looking at. I mean, we're looking even now at curriculum redesign that will help local school districts um, be more attentive to the specific needs, learning needs of their communities. We see high school redesigns that will allow much more flexible programming so that students are not necessarily locked in a classroom from 8 till 3. Uh, I mean, if, if anything, I see our system becoming more diverse in order to reach a broad range of learners, to prepare uh, students to take on a whole, you know, a much more diverse working world and social world. So I, I don't see a sort of homogenous public system as um, in Alberta's future. Thank you, Amy Vaughan-Heisky, for a very interesting discussion.